Konnichiwa. This is Erica. Hey everyone, this is Farine, and we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. listening to Super Smash Hoes. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about motherhood, nationalism, and the Japanese state. But before we get started, Erica has a quick disclaimer for you. Right. So right before we get started, I just wanted to point out that although we do a lot of research for our podcast episodes and we've studied politics, history, and feminism, we're not complete experts and um we do our research, but we want to encourage you to cross-reference with other sources because we can make mistakes. And yeah, so I just wanted to point that out. And then, yeah, I also want to say we're also um, always open to hearing feedback from you guys in terms of language as well. So we are very careful with how we word things when we're talking. Um, but sometimes things don't come off the way we want them to. So just wanted to point that out. Yeah, so it's been a bit of a break that Erica and I have had um, from the podcast. It has. Yeah, it's been a while. I've, I think the last time I saw you was like a month ago already, right? I know. It was crazy. So you were in Tokyo. Yeah, so this is, yeah. this is the episode that we're recording when we're not together. I'm here in Canada. Yeah. Erica's in Tokyo. Yeah, it's so sad. Freen was visiting for like a month. Some of you might know, but yeah. It, I just got so used to seeing you literally every day. Like we were working on the podcast every day, just podcast related stuff. So yeah, it's, it was an adjustment. It was. Erica was basically my wife for the past yeah. month. Um, but we ended the month in the best way possible. Yes. And so some of you yeah, came out um, to our pop-up at Tokyo Love Hotels at Sankey's Penthouse in Omotesando, and we had such a great time meeting you all and, um, yeah, getting to know you, some new people, as well as some people who've listened to the podcast, and it was just so awesome. And, yeah, just – it was amazing. It was so heartwarming. It was the highlight of my trip in Tokyo. It was yeah. honestly the best night. Um, and since that night, we've kind of just had like a – like bathing in all of the warmth we felt that day like all of the love and stuff we've just been like soaking it all up yeah yeah it it was a great experience but also we learned so much because obviously you know there was so much um prepping and organizing just a lot of work that we had to do towards the event and so hopefully we can um move forward and learn from those some mistakes we made and yeah just keep improving in the future from now on yeah and from that let's get into today's episode yay motherhood in japan i know it it can sound a bit interesting that we're talking about motherhood nationalism it's it's a bit of an interesting topic um and i think that one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because of what we have noticed ourselves about Japanese society. Mm-hmm. But also our last episode we did with Professor Nakano, he talked a bit about um, motherhood and how the state um, help, kind of helps structure motherhood and whatnot. So we wanted to go more in depth into that yeah if you haven't already listened to that episode it's a great one professor nakano is so interesting but that is kind of our jumping off point today is um the Mm -hmm. role that the state plays in motherhood and Mm -hmm. i'm going to talk about that a little bit more generally um outside of the japanese context before we get into japan more Mm -hmm. specifically yeah um so in this idea of nation states there's a scholar named benedict anderson and Anderson Mm -hmm. says that nations are imagined communities with imagined social and cultural ties to each other. And based off of this idea that nation states are imagined and that their ties, people's ties to one another are also imagined, women are one of the most important um, 
pieces of transmitting those imagined cultural and symbolical ties. So Mm. Yuval Davis, she says that it's women who reproduce nations biologically, culturally, and symbolically. And if you think about that rationally, I mean, it's true. Without women, you wouldn't have anyone producing children to fight for the nation Mm -hmm. or to be in the nation. That is very true. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, and I think... Yeah, when I think of motherhood and can when motherhood is emphasized, it's a lot, a lot of the times, it's obviously during wartime because, you know, states need um, manpower. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I definitely think nationalism and motherhood is strongly interconnected. Yeah, I mean, just think about it. We call it the motherland for a reason, don't we? Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, clever. But Nations are literally born out of women. And um, in Cynthia Knowles, one of her books, she talks about how national movements and nationalism, they can't occur without the participation of women. That doesn't mean that a woman's participation is necessarily like out of her own free will. It could be like the control over a woman. But essentially, she says that nationalism by itself cannot occur without women. And the right type of mother is an idea that's created by governments to meet their political needs. So Mm -hmm. if we're talking about the idea that motherhood is created, it's not something that's natural or real, um, I think we need to actually point to that being the case. And if you look in Japan, you do see a clear divide between motherhood being important and motherhood not being important for Japanese political needs. Um, Mm -hmm. And if we start with the Edo period... You, with the main overarching theme there is that motherhood isn't exactly the most important um, identity marker for women. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was also reading um, an article by Hiroko Tomida mm-hmm. titled The Controversy Over the Protection of Motherhood and Its Impact Upon the Japanese mov- Women's Movement. And um, to quote her, she was saying, during the Edo period, which is... um. 1603 to 1868 if any of you don't know um japanese woman's status was at a low ebb women's um especially from the warrior class and there were women were regulated by neo-confucian theories represented by kaibara ekens teaching and the ie the family system which we actually still use um today like the ie idea the concept and she says under the system the head of the family had absolute authority over his blood relatives and their spouses and exercised numerous other rights under it women had very few legal economic political and marital rights so i think that summarizes how it was in the Edo period pretty well and you were mentioning um we were talking about it earlier about onadayaku yeah so i think she was the author yeah so if you can explain Ona Daikoku was written in 1716 Mm -hmm. um, and it has 19 articles and this was the most widely distributed text um, for women of the Edo period it was taught throughout the period it was accessible in kanji kana um, and even orally passed meaning it was accessible to women of various different class backgrounds like this wasn't something that was particular to a specific class. The Onodaigaku really was mm-hmm. the woman's Bible of the time. This text was, you cannot underestimate how important this was. And what is really interesting about the Onodaigaku is how that text perceives motherhood. Um, so within the Onodaigaku, there are lots of instructions on how a woman should behave, the ethics and moral codes. Mm-hmm. And it mostly focuses on how a woman should treat her husband, interact with men, and her parent-in-laws. But there's little to nothing about women as mothers in the Onadaigaku. Um, and it's because childcare wasn't actually regarded as a woman's responsibility in this text. So if we look, there's I'm going to read a quote from the actual Onadaigaku from article number 19. And I think mm-hmm. this summarizes very well the uh, view of women as mothers in the Edo period. Yeah. So 
Article 19 starts off like this, and this is the English translation, so there obviously can be multiple ways of reading it since it's been translated into English. Mm-hmm. A woman's infirmities include a lack of submission, ill temper, resentfulness, jealousy, slander of others, and stupidity. Seven or eight out of ten women are afflicted with these infirmities. Thus, women are inferior to men, and they are not fit to raise children, since they tend to be carried away by their love. Since women are ignorant, they should remain humble, obey their husbands, and orders at all times. So, it's very clear in this text that women as mothers was not something that was valued in the Edo period because women were not seen to be valuable educators. They had nothing to contribute to their children, which, if you look at society now, is really different. Um, mm-hmm. And the mother as the educator of her child was really foreign at this time because, um, you know, children were raised by non-maternal caregivers. They were raised by governesses or wet nurses or in poor families where that wasn't affordable. They were raised by the father's parents, so the in-laws. Yeah, that is really interesting. I wonder, I still wonder, because, you know, when we talk about, um, although, oops, sorry, although you said that this um, on the day was accessible to all classes, I wonder how accurate that is in your life, you know, because I know that, yeah, I mean, even if it was available orally, I don't know, um, people f- who were, are in like working class or um we're very poor I feel like I don't know it just doesn't really seem imaginable to me that or realistic to me that everyone kind of had an exposure to this but yeah it is really interesting um I wonder how yeah sorry go ahead no that's fine um yeah so I mean it wasn't only the Ona Daigaku that this was actually like presented in. Um, there were multiple mm-hmm. texts from the time. And even there's a, um, if you look at the texts that were targeted towards men, that's where you mm-hmm. saw more of the childcare um, guidelines on how to raise children, how to raise good boys. That was usually targeted in the men's books of the Edo period. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see. so it... And it wasn't that women taking care of children was wrong. It was the idea of mothers taking care of their own children. So it could have been a woman who was a wet nurse or a grandmother. But the idea of mothers taking care was not as important. Of their own kids. But that actually, the reason that that was that way goes back to what you were saying earlier about the Ie. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the role of the woman during the Edo period, just as you said earlier, was more focused on serving her husband and the house than it was serving the mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be really clear, because it can be confusing, during this Edo period, there was still high emphasis placed on a woman's ab- ability to like have a child. Um, but the system of transferring property wasn't as rigid as it became during the Meiji period because, again, we talked about this um in mm-hmm. women's history, if you remember, that mm-hmm. adoption was still quite possible and adopting um, mm-hmm. a son from another family to to inherit your property was widely accepted, mm-hmm. which also fed into the idea that motherhood at that time was less important. It did play such a central role. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Is, yeah, that is interesting. I just wanted to point out, yeah, major periods from 1868 to 1912, for those of you that don't know. Um, <clears throat> were you going to say something about Edo period? Or? I was just going to say one other quote that I have from Niwa Akiko mm-hmm. and Tomika, Tomiko Yoda. So it's actually, sorry, translated by Niwa Akiko, but the quote is by Tomika okay. Yoda. Um, so mm-hmm. women of the Edo period were not so much relieved from the work involved in childcare as in that they were deprived of the actual agency in bringing up their own children. So control over raising children belonged not to mothers, but to the men or the men's family as a family patriarch. So I don't know if it sounded like in the Edo period, women's life was great. That's not the picture I was trying to paint. Um, Women were still subverted, just as Erica said, but they were subverted in a different way, not as mothers, but as the property of their husband. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. So I don't know if that cleared it up a little bit. I didn't mean to um, illustrate that because they weren't mothers that they had all this freedom. They did not. It was just a different type of oppression. Right. I see. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. And things change quite a bit in the Meiji period. Mm -hmm. Meiji period was pretty long. But um, I read that, yeah, so in Meiji in 1868, there was the Meiji Restoration, which abolished um, feudal society, and some restriction on women were changed. And so I read that women's sphere of activity was widely extended, and um, along with that, a lot of things changed as well. And one of the biggest things that affected women during this period was educational reform. And so there was this thing called the Gakse, which is the fundamental education law um, promulgated in 1872, and that introduced compulsory elementary education. Um, and that was regardless of anyone's sex or a class or they what class they came from. And that was the first time ever in Japan where something like that had been introduced. And also women's higher educational institutions were established and so just in general higher education um was more available to women and um also that broadened job prospects for women as well and um and this you know it sounds like a really great thing that women are the government is emphasizing um education for girls and women during the meiji period mm-hmm. um but I think it's important to contextualize why um, education was actually seen as important during the Meiji period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, realistically, it's because the so if we take it back a little bit into what the Meiji period meant for Japan in general, like as a nation, mm-hmm. um, as you said, Erica, the Meiji period was the change of Japan's feudal system into a more nationalistic system. Um, and mm-hmm. so Japan starts to nationalize, it starts to modernize in the Meiji period. And in the process of becoming a nation state and not being controlled by, you know, 300 some daimyo, uh, education was seen as important because educated mothers can socialize children to be good citizens. And I have a quote from the government of the time that says uh, regarding mm-hmm. education. There's no difference between the two sexes in terms of their value as human beings. While boys are already receiving education, girls are not. But mothers are their children's first teachers, and their influence as an educator is great. It would be an overstatement to say the intelligence of a mother determines the intelligence of her child. Since girls are future mothers, their education is extremely important. So on that note, Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to emphasize, while women were finally going to school. They were learning very different things from their male counterparts. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, like even um, actually my grandma, I know she went to like a woman, like a girl's only school and she learned how to, you know, how to like knit and just do like more home, home econ type stuff rather than just you know learning like sciences or history and stuff mm-hmm. not that she didn't learn any of that but yeah so I think yeah I think if that happens you know in like my grandma's generation like way back in Meiji period like it, it must have been so so different mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it is it is interesting because you definitely see in the Meiji period the shift of women's identity, this is when motherhood really starts to take root in Japanese society. And it's so directly linked to nationalism, right? Like, mm-hmm. it is so this is the time when the Japanese imperial, the Meiji period is also the time like the pre war period, the Japanese imperial army is starting to, you know, fight wars yeah. in the Russo yeah, Japan war. This yeah. is yeah, so for Western listeners who don't exactly know where the Meiji period aligns, this is that period, this is this kind of start of the imperial japanese army the bolstering of the emperor um this Mm -hmm. japan as a strong nation in the asian pacific and it's Mm -hmm. so clearly tied to motherhood um it's crazy absolutely yeah so yeah by the end of like the meiji periods um 
yeah, the scope of like women's work expanded and the number of female workers um, increased by a, a lot. And I think many of them were middle class and they had received some type of education. And obviously, yeah, like you said, Farin, this was a, lo- a big part of the reason for educating these women were so they become great moms for future gen- generations. Um, and then, you know, another thing I think is interesting about the Meiji period is that you have the Edo versus Meiji period is you have a shift of women going from the control of one patriarch, the husband or the father under the EA system, to a mm-hmm. different patriarch, which in the Meiji period is the emperor. So when you look at the way Japan as a nation was constructed or spoke about during the Meiji period, it really was very familial. Like Japan as a country was one family with the head of that family being the emperor as the father figure and soldiers um, in language were spoken about as the emperor's sons. Yeah, subjects, right? Yeah, yeah, sons. the subjects, the the men and women of Japan of the Japanese society were the emperor's yeah. children, and again, children, it, yeah, this idea of like the family structure and the family system yeah. really starts coming into play here, um, because by saying that soldiers are the emperor's sons and soldiers, you know, will fight to defend the Japanese nation or their father you're really starting to have these nationalistic ties associated to motherhood. Mm -hmm. Have you, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but have you heard this term? um, Ryosai Kenbo? Ryosai Kenbo? Mm -hmm. Um, Good wife, wise mother? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So this kind of emerged in the later um, Meiji period and it was essentially like the state sponsored slogan for women at the time Um, and the first part good wife uh, takes a nod at you know previous Edo period value of women as wives to their husbands uh, responsible for the Ie that kind of thing but wise mother that's very new that represented the value of women to the nation and the contribution that women could make because as a wise mother a patriotic mother you raise your child to serve uh, the emperor and the contribution women could make to the nation uh, the contribution a patriotic woman could make was fundamentally through the domestic sphere not through politics or the economy or by working but really to be a good wife and a wise mother was the best thing a woman of the meiji period could be um Mm -hmm. and i think it's super interesting that one of the most um iconic feminist debates of japan's history is a debate that's not about suffrage it's not about women's you know economic um sorry political freedom it's a debate that's fundamentally rooted in the question of motherhood it also emerged Mm -hmm. in the meiji period and it goes back to this idea that women's contribution to the nation is through their capability as mothers. Mm. Um, And that debate is the protection of motherhood debate. Right. Was that the one that Yosano... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Raicho and Akiko. So that's this debate from the later Meiji period. And it... It is. It's so interesting that this is one of the first feminist debates or feminist issues of Japanese society. Um, it's happening at the same time that women are asking for suffrage in Europe and the Americas. Right. Um, but yeah, this right. is about motherhood. Right. Yeah, I, I read that. Yeah, Yosano Akiko is a famous poet and feminist from um, yeah the Meiji and Taito era. So she wrote... Um, Something called Bose Hento Bose which means I refuse to overemphasize the significance of motherhood. And there was a huge debate between her and I think Kiratsuka Raicho, mm-hmm. another writer, um, about what motherhood is. And um, I don't know the the details of it, but Yosano 
was um, expressing that the fact that I became a mother has never been the most important factor in my life. And she has had a lot of kids. I can't remember exact the exact number, but I think it was about nine or ten or somewhere around there. And um, yeah, and she says, even after I became a mother, I continue to be somebody's wife or friend to other people, a member of the Japanese nation and a human being. I am a human being who is absorbed in my thoughts, composed composes tanka poems, writes articles, and is engaged in many other different kinds of mental and physical work. And I think she was also, I believe, um, a, a big advocate for like uh, significant paternal involvement in child rearing, which was not really heard of or it wasn't very common at the time um, when this, this debate was taking place in 1916 in the Taisho period, I think. Yeah. And so it's just so like obviously like nowadays when we hear this it's like yeah like obviously but at the time considering you know like even towards the end of um Meiji era I think there was a lot of political development as well in Meiji era but none of those measures um provided women with any legal political or any social security so it's just really like amazing to see um you know someone say express something like this at that time mm-hmm. and I mean Akiko like we we studied Akiko before and she's someone I think is incredible and who she was having this debate with um was Hiratsuko mm-hmm. Raicho as you mentioned earlier and mm-hmm. Raicho had a completely different perspective about motherhood than yeah. Akiko um and you know, what Hiratsuka Raicho, she had flaws with how the government um, was treating women, but fundamentally mm-hmm. her views of motherhood were in line with the views that the state had about motherhood. And mm-hmm. I think this quote really sums up well what Hiratsuka Raicho um, thought about motherhood and how she contrasted Akiko. She right. says, fundamentally, mothers are the precious source of life. Before women produce children, they are regarded as nothing but mere individual beings. But through their worthwhile act of giving birth to, t- to children, their status as trivial individual beings is raised to a point where they are considered to be socially and nationally important beings. And so what Hiratsuko Raicho really believes is that a woman's importance comes from her ability to birth and raise children. And mm. what's interesting is Akiko, uh, you know, completely disagreed with her on this point that he, mm-hmm. that women do not derive their value from birthing children but what mm-hmm. Hiratsuko Raicho was arguing for was she said that women should um, receive a family wage a wage or protection for being mothers they should receive government mm-hmm. support for their mm-hmm. duty as mothers so Right. You know, within this context, both women, Akiko and Hiratsuko Daicho, are considered feminists, um, arguing for the protection of women in different ways. What I thought was interesting was Raicho's argument still fundamentally kept intact the Japanese government's um, construction of femininity and motherhood, whereas Akiko definitely was more ready to challenge the assumptions that motherhood mm. really was you know, this natural thing that all, that was the only defining factor um, of Japanese women. Yeah, and then should, do you want to move on to around World War World War Two or? Yeah, that's a great idea. I um, don't know as much about World War Two, yeah. so take it away. I think you do, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I read an interesting paper that talked about um, women's associations and how that shaped or how that, yeah, shaped um, the idea of a woman in society. And so it said that um, proper roles of the subject were most fully elaborated through the patriotic women's associations, principally 
Aikoku Fujinkai Patriotic Women's Association and Kokubo Fujinkai Women's National Defense Association and Dainippon Fujinkai Greater Japan Women's Association. I've actually, I've never heard of these before, so I was really surprised um, when I heard about them. But they attempted to define the ideal relation between women and the nation through, mainly through emphasizing home and like yeah and motherhood wow. and yeah it's interesting um yeah th- that again makes me think about like nazi germany they did the same thing mm-hmm. um through like you know these all kinds of groups yeah so during world war Two, it was a crucial time for the japanese the the state to develop japanese nationalism obviously because um they were, you know, in, a, in the midst of a war, and uh, Japanese, all Japanese subjects were called upon to make heavier and heavier sacri- sacrifices for the nation. And yeah, I think you can, I mean, we talked about it with Professor Nakano as well, but you can still kind of see the, rem- the remnants of, you know, wartime nationalism and um, that in relation to motherhood and how it still prevails in society today. That's really interesting about, um, again, as you said, we talked about this a little bit with Professor Nakano, um, mm-hmm. this idea that the, and you do, you're right, you do still see it in Japan, um, but that mm-hmm. woman's contribution to the war effort, because like you said, everybody was being asked to contribute to the war effort. If you were a young boy, you would come and you would serve and you would fight. If you were a young girl, you would, you know, become a nurse and go help. If you were a doctor, mm-hmm. you would, you know. Um, yeah. And it is, it's really interesting that there were these h- huge state-sponsored efforts, I guess you would mm-hmm. say, to get yeah. women to engage in childbearing and rearing for the nation. Yeah. And you can still see it today. You can still see it today, which I think leads us into talking a little bit more about Japanese society today. So, I mean, I think we've showed you, you know, by talking about the Edo period, by talking about the Meiji period, by talking about World War II, that the idea of motherhood hasn't always been a constant in Japanese society. It's changed. Its meaning has changed over time. Um, It's very clearly tied to nationalism and national identity. Diaz, and we're currently in an age where like nationalism is resurfacing intensely in Japan and mm-hmm. I think you see this idea of motherhood on the rise again but this time it's not unchallenged like I think you know in the Meiji period it was motherhood and there was nothing else but now in our society it's at a tension or at odds with career women or different identities that women are holding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because it's really a mix, although it's still, you know, the Abe administration, current government's still very kind of behind in terms of trying to really achieve um, equal equal um, opportunity and rights and everything for women. But also they can't obviously um, kind of put a blind eye to um, women, you know, complaining about men not helping or men not taking like paternity leave. So, yeah, I think they they have all kinds of efforts to kind of appeal to those people as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what? I think I saw on what was it? I think it's a diet website or some government website that um it was encouraging fathers to take less than two months of patern paternity leave after their wife um has kids and stuff so that yeah it's interesting to see all these like different efforts yeah i think the intentions called like ikumen i don't know how you the term ikumen yeah yeah so it's like a for people who don't know um ikumen is the japanese word for like attractive guy i guess yeah and exactly. they've combined two words ikemen and um yeah, yeah iku 
means um the chinese character means like to um to grow or to what do you like say? care yeah to care for kind of yeah so. yeah so it's like hot dads who care for their kids and it's yeah. like it's whole like it's so ridiculous it's this whole media stunt right now basically um but you know taking it back a little bit to Japanese women in society I mean currently Japanese women are you know very engaged in the workforce they're economically involved but that doesn't mean that they're you know economically equal to men and mm. a lot of that is coming from the issues around motherhood because you know there's still a huge uh, pay inequality for Japanese men and women and you can trace that directly back to the issue of motherhood in Japan um so mm-hmm. have you heard about the care crisis or the child care crisis you mean about um the like what's it called um the hoikun and stuff like the waitlisting right yeah waitlisting at hoikun exactly right. that's exactly what i meant yeah. so um basically for people who don't know um japanese waitlist to get your children into daycare are absolutely ridiculous um insane yeah like working yeah so women who work who plan on having kids literally like i i I mean i don't personally know many people (laughs) many mothers but um i often hear that they look for um preschools and like uh nursery nursery schools is that what it's called in english yeah nursery schools exactly nursery schools um because there's such a long wait list like they even plan on yeah look they look for nursery schools before even having a child Mm -hmm. um and again this goes back to the history of motherhood so if you look at the development of childcare in Japanese history, um, hokuin, which is daycare, and yochen, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Yochen, yeah. Yochen, which is kindergarten. They're two different things. Um, daycare is, you know, a little bit more unstructured. It's not as education-based as kindergarten. But the mm-hmm. development of hokuin, mm-hmm. it, was, it was developed as a social safety net, essentially. Um, so in order to keep single mothers from falling into poverty and needing to access social services, Hokuen were developed so single mothers could put their children into daycare and then go and work and make enough money so they wouldn't have to ask the government for money. Yeah. Um, which meant that to apply to a Hokuen, you had, there were very strict conditions and only mothers who were single mothers essentially were mm-hmm. allowed to leave their children at Hokuen. Um, mm-hmm. Kindergartens, on the other hand, you know, they were accessible to mothers who were married, but they didn't mirror the workday. They, you know, lasted from nine to 12. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So they were really something more of a luxury and they weren't really about taking care of children so that mothers could work, whereas Hokuin really was. And there were very few daycares that were actually created because the idea was they're only created for single mothers as a safety net. And that's, you still see that problem, you know, many, many years today. I mean, it's 2019 and we don't have this idea that, or we shouldn't have this idea maybe, that women need to stay at home and take care of their kids. But access to daycare is still basically impossible. Yeah, yeah it's crazy, right? Yeah. Another thing to clarify, yeah, hoikuen. So the age kids enter is usually from like any age, zero to two years old. And then um, with Yochian, you can, I think, how old do you have to be? I think it's like four three or four. Yeah. Or yeah, four or five or somewhere around there. So yeah, like Hoikuin is really for um, daycare. You know, parents. Yeah. yeah. Parents who don't really have an option. They have to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 2005, um, the waiting list for zero to two-year-olds for daycare was 76% of children were on waiting lists. Wow. Five years later, 91% oh my God. of this children. Yeah. 
Yeah, and 72% of Japanese women with children between the ages of four and five wish they were working. Only yeah. 35% of those women actually are employed and work because of their children. Right. And again, that's because there is this, to this day, like th- these are statistics from 2017 that there is this strong idea that women should be the primary caregivers of their children and there isn't enough, you know, government funding going to daycares. And don't get me wrong, like this has been a political issue since like the early 90s. So in 1994, the government introduced the ANGEL plan. Um, The whole plan was to expand (laughs) the services of daycare by 1999. Yeah, and there's the new angel plan. The new angel plan. (laughs) There's the zero waitlist plan, which was created in 2001. There was the new zero waitlist plan created in 2008. (laughs) I mean, from 1994 to 2008, you see new plan after new plan after new plan with the same goal. No new goal. The goal is just to increase the availability of daycares without putting any money in. Because why would we put money and yeah, right. made zero change. Zero. So sad. It's intense. Um, yeah. And again, have you heard of the M curve? The M curve? No, I don't think I have. Okay, so a- another really interesting um, effect of the motherhood identity in Japanese society to this day is the M curve. So if you graph um, the employment patterns of women in all the OECD developed countries, what you see is that it's kind of like an upside down U uh, for most countries. So, you know, it peaks when women Mm -hmm. are in their 20s and it rounds out and kind of goes down by the time women are in their 50s, 60s. Pretty normal Mm -hmm. for all the OECD countries. Mm -hmm. What you see in Japan is a bit of a difference. You see it peak when they're in their 20s, so right after they graduate university, then you take see it take a very steep decline in mm-hmm. their, you know, late 20s, early 30s. You start to see a rise again in the late 40s, and then again you see a drop. So what you see is instead of a U, an upside-down U, you see an M, and mm-hmm. the dip okay. in the M represents the amount of time women take off to take care of their children. Um, And in recent years, like the dip has gotten less deep, but there's still a very clear dip. You don't see a rounding out like you do in other countries. Um, And as an effect of that M curve, most women who are working in Japan aren't working the same full-time jobs that their male counterparts are working. They're working part-time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. I think that we were, we both read the article by Toda Yukiko, Yukiko Toda, mm-hmm. titled The Japanese Motherhood Myth and Its Effects on Women and Family in Contemporary Japan. And I think she was saying somewhere that, um, yeah, the government obviously doesn't truly, like, sincerely care about women wanting to have a more uh, work-life balance with you know wanting to pursue a career but also having a family and kids because they the fact that this has been an issue for so long and instead of making um you know work more uh like a mother friendly so to say um space or yeah so instead of doing that the government yeah companies are you know, hiring women as part-time or um, kind of these contract, um, short-term contract workers. Mm-hmm. And so that really shows that the government really honestly doesn't care about women. Yeah. And something that really frustrates me is um, you have two things that the Japanese government is constantly telling women in the current day and age yeah uh have kids that's number one so if you don't know japan has the world's second lowest birth rate um it just got overtaken this year by south korea before this year it used to have the world's lowest birth rate 
Mm. Um, so that's thing number one that the Japanese government is always saying to women have more kids, have more kids. Um, and thing number two that recently they have started saying that Abe has really been a big proponent of saying is work more, work more, womenomics, more women need to work. And they're saying these two things that don't go together at all because have more kids, work more, but we're not going to give you any type of um, accommodation. We're not going to improve childcare services. We're not going to you know, try to change men's attitudes about domestic responsibilities. You handle both things, do more of both of them. And I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, it's obviously not feasible. It's obviously not feasible. It's obviously not feminist. It it sounds great because you're saying, well, we want to put more women to work. But at the expense of who? Those women's sanity? (laughs) Yeah, I think I read in a BBC article, where was it, that... Yeah, Japanese women are more likely to have a university degree than men, and the number of women in employment has been rising steadily for 10 years. But for a range of reasons, a woman who has had children still has a hard time getting a good job. That's so true. Like, I understand to an extent, you know, that when you take off like a year or, you know, however long your maternity leave is, like, it's you're not going to be at the same place when you come back from from your leave and go back into the workforce as someone who's who hasn't taken a leave but still like the just the extent of the situation it is in japan like women can't even find work like i know i know you know friends moms or whatever who have had such a hard time um even though they're qualified because they're because of their age, even though they're qualified, they can't get a full-time job or they can't even get a, a decent part-time job just because, yeah, I don't know. It just It's very frustrating. Okay, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, because you just talked about, you know, a friend's mother. You talked about yeah. people who are, who've already left, um, had yeah. their kids, and then are trying to go back. Yeah. But is this also a problem? And I'm asking you because I know you've done a little bit of job hunting. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how how true this is. Is this also a problem like when they're hiring women? Because I've heard, and I don't mm-hmm. have statistics on this exact thing to back, yeah. to back me up. So take this with a grain of salt. Don't, mm-hmm. um, yeah, don't completely, for this yeah. particular thing, don't completely believe everything that's coming out of my mouth. Yeah. But I've read this somewhere. Yeah. Is that, you know, when they're, even hiring women, they tend to give them jobs with less social mobility. um, And they give them, you know, jobs in which they assume they'll be leaving after a couple of years anyway, so they don't have the same level of responsibility. They don't get the same training that young out of university boys do, so that when they come back, they don't have the same skills. Um, And when you're job hunting, I also heard that they, they tend to ask you personal questions about if you plan on having a family, if you're Mm -hmm. planning on getting married, um, in order to make assumptions about what kind of role they can give you. Right. Yeah. So I've only looking at um, foreign companies um, for companies in Japan for, for positions in Japan. So I haven't had experience with um, the hiring process with Japanese companies. And I, so I can't speak from experience. I definitely do hear about that though. Like obviously with, um, you know, the medical university scandal that happened like a few months back. Um, If some of you don't know about this, so a prestigious medical university in Japan was rigging the test scores so that boys, men could pass the exam um, at a higher rate because they thought that if women, even if women, you know, pass the exams, they're going to become mothers and they're not going to be in the workforce forever so what's the point right so yeah that was that as well so I think even though I don't have personal experience and don't exactly know if you know interviewees interviewees ask questions like that I think things like that show that that is definitely a thing even if it's I mean we can't be sure how common it is but yeah, I, I definitely think. I forgot about that scandal until you just mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> and 
and (laughs) all of the rage I felt when I heard about it has just come rushing back yeah it was ridiculous and then so many other like I think medical schools um like there were there's just so many things that kept you know it was just like a snowball my favorite not favorite oh sorry my favorite not favorite thing about that scandal was that the Japanese government was literally giving this school money in order to like enroll more women and like they and more like I think it was like 30% women were getting in or whatever and they like managed to like decrease the number of women getting in by um messing with the test scores while still taking the Japanese government's money to increase the number of women ridiculous and this was um the Tokyo Medical, Medical University. University. Yeah. So, you know, it's a huge Very university. It's not some university. small university. No, no offense to any anyone who goes to small is small. And it wasn't but... the only one. I mean, it started with Tokyo Medical University yeah. and then what, there was like three, four others that yeah. admitted to doing the same thing. Yeah, I think it was like Showa University, Kobe University, um, Iwate Medical University, Kanazawa, there were so many that just came out. (laughs) Yeah. Abs, like, I just, I re, um, talking about this has, like, re-enlightened my passion about that (laughs) medical university thing. Like, I remember reading that and just, and reading the director's quotes where he was like, well, you know, women leave the workforce anyways, so we were just trying to And, like, his argument was, like, we were just trying to do it for the betterment of health professionals and patients because patients need their doctors to be there. (laughs) Oh, I have so, like, so many different feelings about this. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, it is just insane. I think there was – correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was even a case in an elementary school where there was rigging and test scores. I don't know. I have to verify that I'm not. Oh yeah. my god, um, that could be true, and I just like completely slipped my radar. Yeah, but I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So that's just. So terrible. that just goes to show you that to this day, the idea of motherhood is so important for Japanese women's equality. Like, even if you, as a woman, don't think it might affect you the soci- the societal view of you yeah. as a potential mother it's scary it's affecting your life whether or not you ever choose to become a mother yeah and you might not even be aware that it's happening it's scary yeah. and like what really shocked well another thought that i had was like it's a medical school you know like you would think that because they know the science you know behind i don't know i thought they would think more scientific based or like logically um and not do something like this but it's just like if a school like a tokyo medical university is doing this like how many other educational institutions or different institutions are going to be you know doing something like that as well yeah and i mean it's every level right like you said there may or may not be this happening at an elementary school. Yeah. This is happening at a university. We have facts about this. We might not have all of the data, but it 100% is happening in the hiring process, right? Mm-hmm. Like every stage of a woman's potential career, mm-hmm. this like idea of her potential ability to give birth is negatively working against her. And like, you might not know nothing about this individual. Maybe she never wants to have kids. Maybe she wants 20 kids. But like, it's all an assumption that this is a woman's like destiny is to just pop a baby out. Everything else needs to work around that. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, one one more thing that just came to my mind. Um, I think it was in 2018 yeah last year so this um Japanese politician Yuka Ogata-san she was forced to leave the chamber last year like the uh (gasps) yeah last year for bringing her a seven-month-old child she also got kicked out for something on a cough drop guys she got kicked out for sucking a cough drop so ridiculous just like the 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 banter that goes on well not the banter but like you know 
yeah, just the comments that these some of these politicians make in parliament and diet meetings and committee meetings is so ridiculous. Like I hear them all the time, but just, oh my God, just imagine being, you know, in a room filled with men, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with men. I'm just saying, you know, you already feel so kind of self-conscious in a way. I don't know. I feel, I, I would feel self-conscious if I went in like a, you know, like committee meeting or something where it's like basically everyone else other than you is male and people saying shit like that oh my god oh yeah I think I I interrupted you I don't think we finished what happened so she went into the meeting with her baby and then so she was forced to leave and then she do I think she she I think she like posted about it on Twitter but what I think is really interesting about this story um of her, you know, going into the committee meeting with her child um, and then getting kicked out. This was around the same time last year that the New Zealand Prime Minister went oh to the UN meeting with her baby Neve. Right? Mm-hmm. It was around it was around the same time as that. It was maybe like a few months here and there, but it was around the same time that that was really big international news. So while that was being celebrated by everybody in the international community, oh, look at her taking her baby to a UN meeting yeah. uh, in Japan. Yeah. This girl got kicked out for bringing her child to a meeting. Yeah. Insane, insane stuff. I was just reading um, okay. on The Guardian. It says Ogata took her infant son to a session of the assembly last year to highlight the difficulties many parents in Japan, particularly women, face trying to juggle work with raising children amid a shortage of nursery nursery places. So yeah, this again, you know, has to do with the the issue of the lack of nurseries as well. And yeah, it's all tied together. But yeah, but I think this received, um, this incident received quite a lot of online attention i saw a lot of people posting about it which is surprising considering um you know things like this happen all the time although maybe not so many female politicians bring their kids to the meetings i'm waiting for the day that a male politician brings his kid into work oh my god <laughs> will it ever come why are we always the ones doing it can't yeah. can't Abe rock up with his little kid <laughs> That's so true <laughs> Yeah, and she says she claimed that attitudes toward her had hardened since she took she since she took her child into the assembly last November. She had earlier asked for permission to breastfeed him in the chamber or for daycare to be provided in the assembly building for the children of councillors, staff and visitors requests that were rejected by the council. So they don't they didn't, it's not like she just like brought the kid in, you know. She was making these requests repeatedly, and they just re- rejected them. Exasperated yeah. sigh. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else we should cover? I mean, there's I feel- so much to this, right? We can talk about this for hours, but... There's so many angles like yeah. that you can look at this, but, you know, I think we did a pretty good job at kind of looking at the history and talking about what's going on now and how how much this affects women even today whether or not they know it yeah I think so too and yeah if any of you want us to talk about anything in particular or if you have any comments about what we said um just any thoughts in general feel free to leave them um you can dm us on instagram at super smash hose podcast or um you can comment on our posts as well so yeah thank you so much for listening i had a really great time doing research for this and talking about it so i hope you all enjoyed it yeah thank you guys so much for listening i agree with erica like this one was so much fun to research and to talk about um and there was so much to say yeah so if we forgot to talk about something or if we talked about something but you know we kind of skipped over it and you want to know more message us like 
let's have a conversation. Yes. We only have so much time. We're not professionals. Like sometimes even there's things that we can learn. So if there's an yeah. article or anything you want to tell us, reach out. And thank yeah. you guys so much for listening. Yeah. And just to, just before we finish off, I just wanted to say like, I really want this to be like a very like open safe (laughs) might be cliche to say but like safe space where you know people can make mistakes but learn from them and obviously you know yeah like we might say something that's not factual or it's you know we might think it's based on facts but it's not um but yeah if you can point it out it's great you know so I yeah I just wanted to say that (laughs) Yeah, we make mistakes, we're human, but we're not the people who are going to try to defend our mistakes. Like, if you notice we've ever done something that you don't think sounds particularly right or isn't exactly the right way to look at things, please let us know. We promise we won't bite. We want that feedback. (laughs) We want to get better and to learn. Um, And yeah, we want to know your opinions on everything. Yes. So yeah, see you guys on the next episode. Bye. Bye.